Well, I may not appreciate the cold weather, and I don't like ice on the streets or ice on the sidewalks. But I will admit to you, I like ice. I do like I like that crunchy, slushy, melt-in-your-mouth cup of ice that sits on your desk that you can imbibe in all afternoon. I, I love that. I love it so much that over a decade ago, I went out and bought my own ice machine, like a good ice machine that makes really good ice. And I'm so addicted that I brought it to my office and hooked it up. I have an ice machine in my office. I love that ice so much. This week I was getting out of my car, I was walking into the office, and I saw someone there, and I picked up my sight and was addressing them. As I stepped off the curb, I stepped onto a pine cone that drops from these trees out here, and I turned my ankle, rolled my ankle. And it was bad. It was one of those where you're like, ah, you know, trying to be dignified and be the pastor. It was so bad, and it hurt, and I, I tried to finish the conversation without crying, and... <laughs> I finally hobbled into the office, and of course, the caring, compassionate staff and pastors here at the office, they see me come in and say, what's wrong with you, Pastor Mike? Like, I twisted my ankle. It was really bad. I was in a lot of pain. And almost to every last one of these people, they say, well, you put some ice on that. You should put some ice on that. Some of them say, you know where to get the ice. I mean, you should put some ice on that. (laughs) And I said to myself, and I said to them, nah, just walk it off, right? That's what Dad used to say. Just walk it off, walk it off. So as I sat there in my office eating my ice that afternoon, every couple hours I try to stand up and walk down the hall and walk it off. Well, I was being tough and all the rest, but it didn't really help. And it hurt, and it hurt all night. Well, the next morning before anyone was at the office, I got to the office, and uh, I didn't tell anybody this, but I put ice on it. <laughs> and, uh, and it helped. And I'm so glad I did. I know it was late and everything in the, in, in the injury, but it, it, it helped. It brought great comfort and relief to my ankle. You know, our culture likes Christmas. I mean, they do. I know there's a war on Christmas and some fringe, and there's some hostile people there. But for the most part, I mean, they're still singing their songs at the mall. It's the most wonderful time of the year. They, they like it. But let me just state categorically, most people are doing it wrong. <laughs> they really are. They just... They, they, don't, they don't get it. They don't understand it. They, they like the holiday. They like the time off. They like the festivities. They like the carols. They, they like all the stuff that goes with Christmas. But they don't know what it's all about. They, they like the taste of Christmas, but they never apply the holiday the way it was intended to be applied. They don't know that what Christmas is all about is going to bring a kind of comfort to the most painful injury of their spiritual lives, and they never seek to put that Christmas concept in the application that's going to really do them the most good. They're doing it wrong. And I would hope as we sit here as a counterculture on a Sunday morning in December in the modern era that we would say, well, wait, we want to make sure we do it right. And we need to understand that as the world does it wrong, we're going to have some, some struggles here with that world. You know, I didn't get around to putting ice on my ankle until the persistence of my pain got my attention. And I said, I guess I, got, I need this. Everyone's telling me I need it. I, I got I to gotta do it. I didn't really put the solution to the problem until I felt the pain and really came to grips with how bad that pain was. Hard for us to realize our need. It's hard for us, particularly then in a, in a society where things are relatively good. It's hard when things are going well to see that we have a need. It's hard to experience the pain of something that needs to be fixed when, you know, I'm not worried about my daily survival. I'm not you know, feeling insecure. I, I feel relatively safe every day. Which, by the way, would be a good description of what was going on in the first century in Israel, particularly in a big fortified city like Jerusalem. It would be a place where you knew that protecting your city was the Roman government. It had the state-of-the-art army. They you know, had poured a lot of money into the city, into the nation, and the economy was flowing and booming, and, and buildings were going up, and great construction was going on all over the, the nation, and everyone felt pretty good about their lives. Except for a man we meet in Luke 2, 
There's a man in Luke 2, verse 25, that we're introduced to in the very first Christmas time who realizes there's a problem. He knows that what's going on in this scene when Christ was going to come to earth in fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies, that he was going to solve a problem. A problem that he felt. A problem that he knew not only he needed solved, but his whole nation needed solved. And it's a hard thing for us to identify with him, but I hope that you have. I mean, I hope I'm talking to a group of people that are like this man in Luke 2.25 who realizes that what we really need is what Christmas is all about. The essence of what that doctrine of the incarnation speaks to. The problem that it solves. So if you haven't turned there already, I want you to look at this man and I want to spend a little time in these 11 verses thinking through what this man should be for us. Not only what he should be by way of example, which is the majority of this passage, but even taking to heart what he says about the coming of Christ into the world. Look at this passage with me in verse number 25 of Luke chapter 2. It says, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Now this man was righteous. Before we go any further, you need to understand every time someone in scripture is called righteous, we are speaking in relative terms relative terms. He's righteous. That means he's not like everyone else who's involved in a kind of unrighteousness that by contrast, this guy stands out. It's like Job. In chapter one, we're learning he's a righteous man. And then the very first thing before we get out of the first paragraph of Job chapter one, he's concerned about sin. He's concerned about the problem of sin. He's concerned about sin in his family, sin in his life, sin in the lives of his children and what's going on in the privacy of their, their own heart. And as oxymoronic as it may sound, when someone is described as righteous in the Bible, someone, a person, a human being, we're speaking of a relative righteousness and they are righteous and they're counted as righteous and they live differently than everyone else because they know they're not righteous. Does that seem paradoxical? But it's true. You want to talk about God being righteous and holy, we know that's absolute so much so that sometimes it's thrice repeated. Holy, holy, holy. Let's make it clear. We're talking absolute righteousness, absolute holiness. But when it speaks of Daniel or Noah or Job or Simeon being a righteous or a holy man, we know we're talking in relative terms and what makes him a holy man, what makes him a standout person that does what is ethically and morally different than everyone else, it's because in their heart they know I'm not holy. I'm not righteous. God's standard is perfect, and I haven't, I haven't lived up to that. That's why the description that comes next is what those righteous people, relatively speaking, do who know they're not absolutely righteous. They become devout. Look at the next phrase. He was righteous and devout, a devout person. You know that phrase, that word? A devout person. They are binding themselves to the dictates of what God has said. They're going to be fastidious and careful and thoughtful. And as the old translations say, circumspect about the things that they do. I want to do it God's way. What does God say? And back to Job again, a righteous man. And what does he do? He's concerned about sin. And so he does what the Bible says. He does sacrifices and he worships and he prays and he does all the things that the scripture says. He's careful to do those things. And Simeon was the same way. A righteous man, different than everyone else, knowing because all righteous people, they know they're not righteous. And because of that, they become devout, doing whatever the Bible says to do to solve that problem. And that was the way this man lived. And in the first century, a man who knew he had a problem, and knew, certainly by contrast, that everyone else in his nation had a serious problem, he was devout about his religion. He was uh, devout about his commitment to the biblical standards about doing what the scripture said. That's why he's here in Jerusalem. That's why we're going to find out he's in the temple area. He was doing what scripture described he should do. And it says because of his understanding of scripture and because of his own need that was in the heart of every person that's described as righteous in the Bible, that there was something God was going to do to fix his problem. And he was waiting for it. Look at the next phrase. Waiting for. Now here's a very interesting way to describe what the Old Testament said they were all working for. The consolation of Israel. 
He was waiting for relief. He was waiting for comfort. He was waiting for something to make things feel better. For the one, as we're going to learn here, that's he's waiting for a person who's going to come to Israel and make things better because things are not the way they ought to be. That's the definition of sin. He knows he's a sinner. He knows he lives among a people of sin who are engaged in sin. He recognizes that as, as Isaiah finds out, as he stands before the perfectly holy God. He knows he's a holy man, but in a relative sense, but the absolutely holy God leads him to say, I'm a sinful man, a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. We've got all kinds of problems here, but God's going to solve the problem. And in that image in Isaiah 6, it was this burning coal that was taken from the tong, by, with tongs from the altar, and it comes and it, it touches his lips and it burns him. And it's a picture of atonement. And then the statement, your, your sins are forgiven. Well, we know through all the Old Testament ceremonies, the picture of a lamb or an animal or a goat or a bull that was going to in some way be this substitutionary picture of you going away from worship okay with God when something, in this case, an animal, had to die in your place. That picture, that symbolism, he knew that was just a symbol. We're looking for what John the Baptist said was one day coming, and that's the Lamb of God, a human being who takes away the sins of the world. And Simeon understood enough of that theology from the Old Testament to be waiting for that consolation, the salvation of God, the solving of the problem. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Well, certainly he's reading the Holy Spirit's book, the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament, and he's in sync with it. He's devout. He's doing what it says. And the Holy Spirit, of course, I mean, he's, he draws near to people like that. And it had been revealed to him, verse 26, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. It's kind of a majestic way to say it. God's Christ. There's going to be that person that the Old Testament kept looking forward to. And you know what? You are not going to die until you get to see that person. Verse 27. He came in the spirit, which may sound like he's floating three inches off the ground, but that's not what it means. It means by God's providence, by God's direction, that here he is doing what God has made to happen in the right place at the right time in the providence of God in the sovereignty of God God directs him to go to the temple which I'm sure he had all of his mental faculties processing why he should go that day but the spirit was guiding him the providence and sovereignty of God leads him to the temple at the very time when the parents brought in the child Jesus so here comes the baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph are there And they were going to, bottom of verse 27, do for him according to the custom of the law. And the law had a series of things to be done. Things to be done for the mother. Things to be done for the child. Things to be done for the firstborn. You had sacrifices to bring. You had a ritual to go through. You had liturgy to be involved in. And here was this poor, humble couple that was in town. And they were going to go through everything that the law said. Devout. Much like you might expect from this man's grandchildren. The kind of thing that you would expect someone who loves God and wants to keep the laws of God, which directly are drawn from Leviticus 12 and Exodus 13, doing what the custom of the law had required. He comes up in verse 28 and took him, that is the baby, up in his arms. That's Simeon now. And he blessed God. Blessed God. You know what that means? To to say something positive. To say a good statement to God about God. And what's the good thing he said to God about God? He said, verse 29, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. I can die now happy in peace according to your word. Because up there in verse 26, it had somehow been revealed to him and God had given him this this confirmation that he wasn't going to die until he saw the Messiah, the Lord's Christ. And now he says, okay, you kept your word for my eyes have seen your Christ. No, he uses this parallel word now, your salvation your salvation. This is what we need. We need saving. We have a problem and it needs to be fixed. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. That's the Old Testament pictures throughout. I mean, really the heart of the great prophecies about this in Isaiah 40 through Isaiah 60, this great picture of the Messiah being presented like a light shining on the people. This 
presentation of God's solution for the problems of mankind, Christ would come. That's why Handel went to that section of Isaiah to come up with all those great phrases he put into the oratory, Handel's Messiah, that is sung still in some places, I guess, every Christmas time. And they, they remind us of this saving person that comes like a light shining on the people. And everyone's going to see it. Matter of fact, he makes that clear. Verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory. So here's three words that he's using under the rubric or the heading of Christ. Christ is going to be salvation. He's going to be like revelation, like illuminating light for the revelation to Gentiles, even the non-Jews. And for glory, kabod, weight, the word used of Solomon, dressed in his regal robes, the importance of, of, of this leader to your people Israel. That's pretty big as Joseph and Mary stand there listening to this old man speak about their child and his father and mother marveled at what was being said about him, about Jesus. Let's just consider those first few verses there, 25 through 33. Let's understand that Simeon is in great joy over what he is now seeing. And for those who are in the know, who feel their pain, who recognize their problem, who know they need something called salvation. Those people experience at the arrival of Christ or us as we look back on it through the commemoration of the arrival of Christ, they have great great joy in this. And you ought to understand that. Number one, you ought to understand the joy of Christmas for Christians. It's a celebration of people who feel the relief and the joy and the satisfaction and the comfort that comes from knowing that the Lord has provided his Christ, his Christ. By the way, look at that word in verse 26 when he says, I know that God has affirmed to me I'm not going to die until I've seen the Lord's Christ. And I want you to think about that. Sunday school grads, you know it, but think about what the word Christ means. Christ. Christ is a transliterated word into English from the Greek language. The Greek New Testament, Christos. And we just jam it into English and we call it Christ. In the Old Testament, we have a word like that too. Mashiach. Mashiach is the word Christos, if we look back on it in Hebrew, and we transliterate that, Messiah. Messiah and Christ, same word, one transliterated from Hebrew, one transliterated from Greek. But neither of those words, Messiah or Christ, are translated. But were we to translate it, we would be able to understand from the etymology of what the word means, that it means to pour something on you. Pour, in the context of the Old Testament, oil on you. The Lord's going to have someone who's had oil poured on him. What does that mean? Well, it means that in the Old Testament, you had three classes of leaders, essential leaders in the nation of Israel, and they all were set apart and commissioned. They were coronated, if you will. That's a kingly word. They were put in their positions and installed legally in their positions by a ceremony of pouring oil on their head. If you want to use an English word, and unfortunately it doesn't communicate much anymore, but the old English word for it is to anoint them. Messiah means anointed one. Christ means anointed one. Anoint means to pour oil on your head. It really means to, 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 to brush or to paint or to pour or to smear something on you. That's the picture, and the picture in the Old Testament was oil, a special oil, an oil that was made under the Mosaic law with very special ingredients, and it smelled good, and you couldn't use that ingredients for anything else but making that special anointing oil. And I said there were three groups of people. Most importantly, when you thought about your need or the problem that you had before God, the problem that always righteous and holy people in the Bible knew more profoundly than anyone else, that they weren't holy and righteous. Not in any absolute sense. They may be more moral than the next guy, but they're not moral. They may be living a life that's a little bit better ethically than their neighbor, but you know what? They're not really ethically pure. And they know they have a problem. And the first group of people that was very important to Israel and their leadership was a group of people called the priests. And the priests were there to take the sacrifice of the worshiper who knew that they had a problem and to say, listen, God's going to fix your problem. I'm going to take your lamb. I'm going to take the bull, take the goat from your herd. I'm going to now go and sacrifice that. And then I'm going to turn my back on you and I'm going to go to the temple 
because that's all happening in the temple courtyard. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to represent you before God. I'm going to intercede for you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for God to love you and bless you and bring peace to you. Even though you're a sinner, God is holy. You're not. But I'm going to stand between as a mediator between you and a holy God. That was a super important role. And according to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, that's a role that was filled by imperfect people. And of course it was. That's all you had to choose from is imperfect people. And they had to not only sacrifice for the people's sins, they had to sacrifice for their own sins. And they did it with symbols. And the symbols were goats and bulls and sheep. And they had all these animals, the oxen that they would kill as a sacrifice. And it was all a picture of the fact that really you deserve punishment. But God is going to let you off the hook by punishing someone else. In this case, something else, an animal. But one day there would be a lamb. A lamb. A human lamb. A lamb of God who was going to really take away your sin. And the Old Testament kept looking for that. Like in Isaiah 53, there would be someone who the transgression of your immorality, of your sin, of your unethical behavior, of your lying and your lust and your cheating and your stealing, all of that is going to be placed on the Lamb of God. And he's going to be sacrificed like a guilt offering and crushed by God and you would be accepted. If you were in the Old Testament, you trusted those priests because those priests would stand and say, I'm praying for you. I'm going to accept the sacrifice on behalf of God. I'm going to walk into the temple. I'm going to represent you there. There's going to be smoke and incense and candles, and there's a box in the Holy of Holies, and even only the high priest could go in there once a year, and I will represent the people, and I'll be your mediator. And here's something Simeon knew. That's what we need. That's the only way we can be saved from the penalty of our sin. That's why, if you want to break this down, in verse number 30, the Lord's Christ would be salvation. That's why the parallel word is used there. My eyes have seen your salvation. The only way we can be right before God is to have someone save us from our sin. And the Old Testament priests symbolize that in all the ceremonies of the Old Testament sacrificial system. But one day, someone would sacrifice, and as Hebrew says, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by his own blood. A perfect human life would be sacrificed so that you could be accepted to a holy God. And Simeon knew enough about the Holy Spirit's book, the Old Testament, to know, I can't wait for our sins to be forgiven. And we need salvation. And now I've seen a baby. And that baby is going to grow up to be that salvation for us. And you prepared this person in the presence of all people. And he is, look at the next thing, verse 32, a light for revelation. You know what the word revelation means? The essence of it is to disclose something. Something you wouldn't know unless it was disclosed to, to reveal something. And so it was in the Old Testament. If you wanted revelation from God, you went to a particular kind of person and that was a person that played a very important leadership role in Israel and that was called the prophet. And the prophet, Nabi in Hebrew, was the mouthpiece of God. If you want to know what God thought, he would tell you what God thought. And when God's spirit came upon the prophet, he would speak and something you were ignorant about, you would be informed about. Something you were dark in your thinking about and your understanding, he would enlighten you. He would give you knowledge. He would give you the light of revelation. That's what the prophet did. And you know what the prophets had to go through to be a prophet? Well, they were set apart by God and there was a ceremony where they poured oil on their head and they anointed them as the Christ. Yeah, the Christ. The Messiah. I thought the Messiah was Jesus. Well, that, he, he is, but that's my point. Jesus was going to be not only the salvation, like the priest providing that intercessory mediation between God and sinful man, he would also be the prophet. God has spoken in many ways in the Old Testament, Hebrews 1, 1 says, but now he's spoken to us in his son, the ultimate prophet bringing the light and the mind of God. We've got four big books called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John extolling and explaining and, and expositing the thoughts of God. As Jesus comes on the scene and all those red letters, he gives all that information and then he promises to take the apostles and continue that revelation in the New Testament. We get 27 books of New Testament thought through Christ and his apostles. We have revelation and it's going not just to the Jews. Guess what? There's more Gentiles now than Jews that are picking up the revelation of the Christ and studying it this morning around the world. And Christ is that great prophet He's the great priest. He's the Messiah, the Lord's Christ. And he also is filling a dual role. He's also the prophet, the mouthpiece, giving us information. And then lastly there, bottom of verse 32, he is for glory to your people Israel. 
Oh, I understand he's going to be information for the Gentiles. But he's also going to fulfill that role that was promised to David that there would be an offspring that would be on a throne and be the great king of the nation of Israel. And it wouldn't be just for Israel, but Israel would be the epicenter of this regal reign. And around that would be all the nations bringing their glory to this kingdom. And they would all be a part of his kingdom. And the extent of his government and his leadership, there would be no end. And this child would be born, as it says there in Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9. And there would be in that promise of a Messiah, not just a priest and not just a prophet, there would be a king. And that king would rule and reign. And if you wanted to know how to live, if you want to know what to do, if you wanted direction and leadership, you'd go to the king and the king would tell you. And one day he'll rule from a throne. And this baby was born. And Simeon knew this. I, I, I've seen the Lord's Christ. I've seen the Messiah. I've seen the Christ, the Christos. Who is that? That's the one who would not only be the priest, he would also be the spokesperson, the prophet, and he would also be the leader. He would be the king. And it's all wrapped up in this little eight, 12 pound baby that was just hardly getting started in the first month of his life, brought before the Levitical priests. And Simeon says, wait just a second. Mom and dad, let me tell you who you got here. The angels had already given him a foretaste of who he was. But they marveled, verse 33. But all these things that were said about him, they were like, wow. I mean, maybe that was the first time they thought about if they really pondered the words that he would be salvation, he would be revelation, he would be the glory. The same word used to describe Solomon and all of his glory, the son of David, the one who ruled in regal robes. He was the glory of Israel. Your son, priest, prophet, king, the glory of Israel, the anointed one. Understand the joy of Christmas for Christians. And I'd like to follow the example of Simeon. And we talk about Jesus born into the world. We set up a Christmas tree. We put up Christmas lights. We have a Christmas banquet. We, we, we cook a, a turkey or a ham or whatever you do. We think about the fact that Christ has come into the world. What does that mean for the average person? Not much. Time off. Festivities. They're chomping on the taste of Christmas. There's a lot of little indicators that should point you to the importance of the incarnation of Christ fulfilling all the basic problems that we have. We're not right with God. He's provided a solution. The Christ, the priest. We don't know his will. He's provided a solution. Christ, the prophet. We don't know what to do, even with our lives. We want to be our own captain, our own master. He's provided a master and a captain. We're to follow Christ. Jesus coming onto the scene provides all those things, and we celebrate that. And it should bring us what it says in verse 25, the consolation, the comfort, the fulfillment, the sense of how good it is to know this Christ of the Bible and to say that all the fulfillment of all the promises are bound up in this son that was born in Jerusalem. But Simeon goes on in verses 34 and 35 and he blessed the family, he blessed them. And then he says specifically to Mary, his mother. Look at this with me, verse 34. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Now you just said... He's the priest, he's the prophet, he's the king, he's the Christ. Everyone should be for that. Everyone should go, yay, he's finally here. But Simeon's a realist. Of course, the Spirit of God is working through this statement, giving him a prophetic voice to make very clear what the Bible's made clear from the very beginning, and that is whether we're talking about Cain and Abel, or whether we're dealing with Judas and Peter, or whether we're dealing with you and your neighbor. Not everyone's going to have the right view of what is true and what is right. And when it comes to Christ, and he comes on the scene as a light for the revelation to the whole world, to the Gentiles, not everyone's going to respond to that light the same way. Matter of fact, it's going to bifurcate the world. It's going to put them into two categories. It's going to cause some to fall and some to rise. And there are people that are either going to love him or hate him, be devoted to following him or despise him and want to crucify him. That's the polarizing nature of the coming of Christ. And Simeon's very forthright about that. Not the kind of thing you'd want to see at a child dedication, right? To remind the parents that your child is going to be a polarizing figure. And not just polarizing, but look at the next phrase. And a sign, and for a sign, he's going to be appointed, determined, designated, set up as a sign that is opposed. Man, that's a strong word too. People are not going to like him. They're going to take shots at him. They're going to speak against him. They're going to revile him. A lot of people are not going to like him. Pass the parenthetical statement for a minute and go down to the bottom of verse 35. So that the thoughts 
from many hearts may be revealed. That's what separates people into two camps. That's why a lot of people don't like him. That's why, as Jesus said himself to Nicodemus in John 3, you need to understand that people don't like the light if they love their evil deeds. And they don't want to come into the light. Just like the cockroaches want to scurry when the lights come on. Why? Because they don't like the light. And in the case of human hearts, as their hearts and their motives are revealed before God, it's it's tough. It cuts. It divides. Which, by the way, I'm quoting here, and I'm trying to allude to it so that you think about it. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. When we echo this sentiment in our culture, and we talk about the light of what Christmas is really all about, It is like the word of God because it is the word of God. We're saying the things that the Bible says and it's a sharp two-edged sword. As Jesus said, I came to bring a sword to divide families, to divide offices, to divide neighborhoods. That's what I'm going to do. A light that is going to be loved or hated. People are either going to see I need this, it's the solution to my problem, or they're going to dislike it and oppose it. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces down to the division of bone and marrow, all the way down to the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And the next verse, verse 13, is because we realize that this God that we're talking about, who's given us this word and really penetrated the world with information about who he is through Christ in the codified scriptural propositional statements of the Bible. It's all about him to whom we must give an account. Everything's laid open and bare before the eyes of that God. And you start talking about God watching you, be like you coming into someone's house and going, you know, there's 18 cameras set up in your house. I don't know if you knew that or not. You start explaining that kind of exposure, that transparency, that vulnerability. They're not going to like it. And so it is. That Christ, if you preach the biblical Christ, is offensive to this world. Matter of fact, that's worth jotting down. Number two, you need to realize how offensive Christ is to the world. To Christians, he's the answer. He is what, what Simeon says, a consolation, salvation, revelation, glory. He's the priest, he's the prophet, he's the king. But to the world, and people are taking shots at him. They don't like him. I can't even quote Jesus' definition of marriage and gender without getting in trouble. Think about that. In Matthew 19, he starts talking about marriage and he defines it, guess what? The way that you can't define it anymore. Have you not read from the beginning, he created them male and female. And he put them in a relationship, in a covenant relationship, to be faithful to one another for life. That, I, I can't even speak in those terms. We fought the battle before in previous generations with the whole concept of the normalization of divorce. And now we're here. We're not even defining marriage the same way. And I can't even talk about this kind of cisgender, you're a male or female. I can't even quote the simple definition of Christ. I can't quote a verse from Christ in our day without being controversial as it relates to the definition of marriage and gender. Think about that. I mean, and I could go on all morning. I can look at all the things that Christ said, all the things that the apostles said about what Christ is doing in this world, and people can say, I don't like it. When Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. What are you saying about the Buddhists? What are you thinking about the Hindus? What are you saying about all those Sikhs? What are you saying about people that don't believe what you believe? Are you telling me they're all going to hell? I'm not telling you that. I'm presenting to you a Christ of the Bible who made it very clear, and the apostles just echoed what he said. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's just what Christ said. And I'm sorry. Yeah, I guess that means the Hindus are wrong. The Muslims are wrong. The Buddhists are wrong. And you better get right with Christ because there's no one else. Because he said he's the way, the truth, the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Now, I can be non-offensive, but I'll have to change all that information. If I change that information, as Paul said in Galatians 1, I'm no longer a servant of Christ. And guess what? You can say, well, I'm glad I'm not a preacher, Pastor Mike. You are a preacher. And you're going this December to explain to people the reason for the hope that's within you. The reason you see the coming of Christ as a good thing. I'm not saying you have to stand up with a Bible in your hand and say, let me have the floor for the next 50 minutes at your Christmas dinner. But I am saying that when you're asked for a reason for your hope and people see how differently you celebrate the incarnation of Christ at Christmas, that you're willing to say what Jesus said. And you're willing to stand with the sign that is opposed. And the real Christ, I guarantee you, is opposed by so many people in the world. And if you stand with him, Jesus has said it repeatedly. Don't think that the servant is greater than the master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. That's not a popular passage. But it's an absolutely true passage. 
a sign that is opposed. There's going to be a lot of people speaking against the real Christ of the Bible. And you hold that sign up, guess what? You're going to get shot. Right? If you think you're really good at archery and you say, come over to my house today, stand in my backyard, Pastor Mike, put this apple on your head, I'm going to shoot it off your head. I will refuse. I don't mean to be offensive, but I ain't going to put an apple on my head and have you shoot it off. You want to put it on a post in your backyard and let me stand behind you and have you shoot it? I'll watch you. I don't want to hold the target. And the Bible says that you are to be so allied with Christ that you are holding up the picture of one that Simeon made very clear and Jesus himself made clear the world is going to speak against him. And I'm going to hold him up. Am I jamming my religion down someone's throat? That's not what I said. But I am saying this, I'm not going to compromise on what Christ taught about marriage, about gender, about the sanctity of life, about the exclusivity of the gospel, about who God is. I just can't, I'm sorry, that's what he said. And one day I'll be judged by him and that word sometimes cuts and divides and it's hard and it'll divide families and I understand that. It'll hurt relationships. But when you speak the truth, that's what happens. Speak the truth in love. But sometimes people think real love is not speaking the truth. Don't make that huge mistake that so much of our culture under the banner of Christianity has made. I don't want to talk about the truth anymore because it's not loving. The most loving thing I can do is to speak the truth of the gospel of Christ and the true message of who Jesus is. Well, Jesus said very clearly, Luke chapter 6, you need to understand that there will be people that will hate you, exclude you, revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of me. And I just want to recognize that Christ is going to be offensive to the world in which we live. And even the solution to the sin problem, even if you can recognize the sin problem. I talk about my ankle and you put an ice on it and you need it. You know, I got some friends that are starting to realize that their hearts are restless, that they are finding emptiness in their job, that their kids aren't turning out the way they thought. And they're, they, I mean, I think they're ripe and ready for the gospel. As a matter of fact, the more I talk about Jesus to them, the more interested they are. And I'm saying this. That's all good. But it doesn't mean that everyone who feels their need is ready to apply the solution the way that they ought to. Remember the story back there in 1 Kings when a little girl from Israel was taken a prisoner, absconded from her northern tribes of Israel, taken to Syria, to Damascus. She became a servant in the house of a commander of the Syrian army and worked for this commander's wife. And this was during a period of time where God was establishing the prophets. And just like with the Torah, the law, you had miracles done through Joshua and Moses so that we could have a written corpus of information from God and the prophets were authenticated through their miraculous signs. Now as we started this season of the prophets, you had miracles being done, but the two primary prophets that started this this series of, of messages that became our Bibles, the middle section of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, so these two guys, you know them, Elijah and Elisha. Be more convenient if their names didn't rhyme, but they do. I can't change that. And Elisha was the prophet at the time this little girl gets taken as a prisoner. And if she's taken as a prisoner, she'd heard about, if not seen, Elisha do some miraculous things, which is rare in the Bible, but it happens when God is authenticating the prophetic word. And so the word coming through Elijah and Elisha was confirmed to the people by the fact that they did some miraculous signs. They broke natural law through their word and what they said. This girl, I don't know, teenager, young 20s, I don't know how old she was, but she's a young Israeli girl, sees that her mistress's husband, the commander of the Syrian army, had this bad skin disease. And she said to the commander's wife, you know, it's too bad you guys aren't living in northern Israel because there's a prophet there. That guy does some amazing things. I'll bet even the prophet Elisha, he could heal your husband's leprosy. Well, the wife tells the husband, the husband's name is Naaman. Naaman hears it and he goes, wow, I've tried everything else. I need to find out about this prophet in Israel. So he goes to his boss, Ben-Hadad. We learned about him in Second Chronicles 16 not long ago. And he writes to King Joram, the king of the north. And he says, listen, I got this commander. He's got a bad skin disease. I hear there's a prophet in your land that can heal him. Come on, heal this guy for me. And 
Joram rips his clothes. What are you talking about? I, I, what am I, a healer? I, I give light. Oh, why, why are you coming to me? I mean, can you imagine getting this letter from this other country, this national leader? And he, he, he freaks out. Well, Elisha hears about it. He says, Joram, what are you doing? Send him to me. So Naaman comes with his entourage and all this money and all this stuff. And he shows up at the front door of Elisha's house. And it's just so funny the way this passage plays out. Elisha doesn't even go to the door. Can you imagine if limousines pulled up in front of your house? Or you got an entourage, you got motorcycle cops surrounding, and out comes this dignitary from this other country. And you don't even go to the door. Elisha sends a messenger to the door and has him address Naaman. And he says, listen, you want to be healed of your leprosy? Go to the Jordan River and dunk yourself in it seven times and you'll, your skin will be restored. Well, can you imagine that kind of, hey, Naaman, go do this. Oh, he hated it. It says, and Naaman became angry. No, he was desperate. He had a pain. He had a problem. He wanted a solution. He thought the solution was in Israel. He thought he could get the solution through the prophet of Israel. But when he heard that, he went ballistic. He said, we got rivers in Damascus. We got rivers in Syria. If dunking myself in the river was the solution... I can do that. I mean, your little lousy, muddy river called Jordan, I'm supposed to go, forget it. And he storms off and it says he's angry. Prophet gave him the solution. Didn't give it to him with all the pomp that he wanted. As a matter of fact, he said, I was hoping the prophet would come out and wave his hands all around and something big and miraculous would happen here and it'd be some big show. And as they're going back to Syria, before they even leave Israel, the servants come around, Naaman. They say, Naaman, did you hear what the prophet said? I mean, sir, boss, can I talk to you for a second? Did you not hear? He said, and you will be clean? I mean, come on, we came all this way. I mean, you're desperate here. You've been to all the physicians in Syria. Why not do it? Just do it. And they prevail upon Naaman, and they take a right turn, and they go to the the Jordan River, south of the Sea of Galilee. And he does exactly what the prophet said. He dips himself seven times in the Jordan River and he comes up and I love the way the writer of of the Kings puts it. It says, and he came up out of the water. His flesh was restored like that of a little child, right? Talk about your mud masks or whatever kind of skin you're looking for. He comes out like this baby skin now. He's got eight-year-old skin. And he's healed. It's just an interesting story sitting there in the middle of Kings. And it reminds me that you can have a problem. You can even go to the right people to have that problem solved. You can have people that in your Christmas time have problems in their marriage, problems with their kids, problems in their life. They think, you know what? Maybe I need some God in my life. Maybe you can tell me about that God. And you're excited because you think they feel it. And they cry out even with a heart of conviction. And they might say as they did in Acts 2, what must we do? And then you give them the answer. Trust in Christ alone. Repent of your sins. And maybe like Naaman, they get angry. I thought there was something more complicated to do. I thought there was something better. I thought there was something different. I thought you'd tell me to do these things. Well, there's plenty of religions that will give you all the things you want that make you feel like you're getting right with God. But if you want the gospel of grace, you want the gospel of Christ paying it all for you, you want the gospel that could look at a criminal being crucified on a cross and say to him today, right now, you are forgiven and you'll be with me in paradise. You're fully qualified for heaven. That's the gospel that the world doesn't like. And I'll prove it to you. Think of any situation where you've had some jailhouse conversion before the execution of the rapist or the murderer or the triple homicide person or the serial killer or the cannibal, the dommers of life that are eating their victims and then have them get Jesus in jail before they go get executed and see what the world thinks of that. You mean to tell me there in heaven and the sincere Buddhist and the sincere Hindu are in hell? You mean to tell me that? I don't believe any of that. That's the message of the gospel. Trust in Christ. Trust in him like a little child. And you'll have your sins forgiven. Not as a result of works. Not about a system of penance. Not about something you do. Not about going to a place called purgatory. There is nothing you can do other than trust in Christ. And the day you do, you are fully qualified for the inheritance with the saints in light. You've got to give the message and you can't compromise it. If you tell people, just love Jesus, love each other, everything will be fine, go to church, give money, it'll all, it'll, you'll, you'll be great. Get down to the gospel of grace with these people. 
The diagnosis is hard enough, and there's a lot of people in your circles, I'm sure, that don't want to hear the diagnosis this Christmas, that you're telling them Jesus is the answer to a problem. The problem of, think about it, your sin, your ignorance, and your waywardness. And you need the priest, you need the prophet, you need the King Jesus Christ. That's hard enough. But then to say, here is what you do. You humbly repent. You exalt and enthrone Christ as Lord in your life. You do what he says. You define marriage the way he says. You define life the way he does. You define everything by what Christ has said and what he has taught in Scripture and what the Spirit of God has codified in the pages of the Bible. They're not going to necessarily like that. Matter of fact, that's a sign that the world's taking pot shots at, and it's hard for you to get other people to say, come hold the, come hold the target with me. They don't want to always do that, although you did, right? And there is hope. Even the one taking the shots at Christ, like Saul from Tarsus, can become Paul the Apostle because God is still in the business of changing hearts. He is all about presenting Christ as a light to the world and to have them rise and be seated with Christ in heavenly places, Colossians 3. He's not only a child that's appointed for the rising of many in Israel, he's appointed for the rising of many in South Orange County, California in the 21st century. We've got to open our mouth Now, for all the good stuff that was said in verses 25 through 33 in this negative section here, we have this one parenthetical phrase, and it relates to the sign that is opposed, and that is that a sword, Mary, will pierce through your own soul also. Not only are they going to be taking pot shots at Christ, but the sword is going to pierce through your soul. Two words in the New Testament Greek for sword One for the normal sword you'd see a Roman soldier carrying, but then there was this one big sword that was almost like a ceremonial sword, a huge sword. And it's only spoken of in the book of Revelation, except for this passage, in a metaphorical sense. Mary, there's not a dagger. There's not a regular Roman sword. There's a big, big pain that is going to come and pierce through your own soul. It's going to hurt. And it did hurt, Mary. And Mary was one who recognized the pain, and yet she was there at the cross and became one that we've been learning about in the book of Acts, there in that 120 in the upper room. She became a spokesperson for the church. We don't learn anything about her because she didn't play any kind of salvific role or even a significant role, more than the 120 who were there saying exactly what Jesus said should be said, and that is that we ought to repent, put our trust in Christ, we ought to make disciples of all the nations But it was a painful thing for her to stand with Christ, just like it'll be a painful thing for you. And yet with great joy, she could, even when her pastor was being persecuted and imprisoned, she could be praying as Peter was in jail, along with the rest of the disciples, joyfully recognizing the privilege of being persecuted for Christ. She was an example, as so many others were, of having this joy that helps her get through the difficulties. I put it this way. Number three, we need to do the same. We need to let the joy of what Simeon saw in Christ and what Mary would eventually see in Christ, we need to let that power us through the conflicts. You want to stand up for Christ this Christmas? You're going to have some conflict. Conflict in your family, conflict in some conversation. People are going to get mad at you. You may lose some relationships as you lovingly express uncompromisingly the message of Christ. But I would say this, let the joy be the thing that allows you to power through all of this. Matter of fact, I can't leave this concept without having you turn with me real quickly to Hebrews chapter 12. Christ is our ultimate example. I don't have much detail about Mary and what she did. Roman Catholic Church has sadly made her a figure in their theology that is completely unfounded, unbiblical, and unnecessary. But biblical Christianity would set up Christ not only as our only mediator, but as our ultimate example of what it is to see joy on the other side of the conflict, to recognize that what should power us through and give us endurance is the joy that settles into our heart that says this, I have the ultimate priest, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate king. I have salvation granted to me, information given to me, and leadership provided for me. I can make it through conflicts with my family. I can make it through conflicts at work. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You got a task this December. 
you got a task in the new year, and you should run it with endurance. No matter how hard it is, no matter how difficult it is, jettison the sin in your life and run it. And as you do, verse 2, looking to Jesus, who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He's the whole reason we have this hope. Who for the joy set before him, now he becomes the pattern. The joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now, the cross wasn't the joy. It was the obedience to the cross, and it was the crown beyond the cross that brought him great joy. And that joy he was fixated on. He set his sights on what lied beyond struggle, beyond the conflict, beyond the cross. And then he had to look at the cross and think less of it. That's the word here, despising the shame. The word to despise is to think less of it, to belittle it in your mind. Just like you ought to belittle the relationships that are strained, the difficulties that you have, the lack of a Norman Rockwell dinner at Christmas, and you say, it's really, if I'm faithful to Christ, I don't get these things that seem to be so important to the world. You think less of it. You despise it. I despise the shame. If I get criticized, reviled, hated, spurned as evil, as Luke 6 says, we're going to. It's okay. Because the joy set before me, I recognize where I'm going. Through the conflict to the kingdom. And Christ, of course, received that joy. And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He got exalted, just like he said, you, under my mighty hand, humble yourself, and at the proper time, Christ will exalt you, Peter said. Consider him, verse 3, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. I want to tell you, the message of Christmas is controversial, and it's getting increasingly controversial. I can't preach a lot of things today. If I were to do it publicly on television, I would be in so much trouble. I mean, I'm broadcasting this message on 800 radio stations. And I assure you, the more this continues to decline in our culture, the more hostility we'll have to endure. We endure some of it. They call us names. They revile us. They exclude us. Fine, that's true. But it's getting worse in our culture. But I think of Christ and the hostility he had against himself. Wow. And he powered through it. And according to verse 2, it's because he set his heart on the joy of what all this meant, of where he was headed, of what this is all about, of what his obedience was accomplishing. Well, consider him who endured such, from sinners, such hostility against himself. So that you, Mike, so that you, reading this passage right now, may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now, Jesus didn't compromise. Sin is all about compromise. In your struggle against sin, I know it's hard, it's painful, You haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood, and that's certainly true for us in this room. I mean, really, what does it cost you? A job, a relationship, opportunities, an account, a client? Well, it certainly hadn't cost us a crucifixion. And he's saying, listen, we've got a long way to go in proving our loyalty here. And I'm not saying that we bite the bullet We grin and bear it. I'm saying you really have joy. Verse 2, that sets before our minds. Our minds go to what Christmas is all about. When we're getting ridiculed by our atheistic sister-in-law. Or when your, your family member or your wayward son is reaming you for what you believe about the Christ of the Bible. When they bring up homosexuality or abortion at your dinner. And you say, well, this is what it says. This is what God has revealed. And they, they rake you over the coals. You say, my sight set on the joy of obedience and faithfulness to the message of Christ. A sword will pierce your own soul. A tender moment, if I can even use that word to describe anything related to the cross, but there's a tender, tender moment when Christ gives one of his seven statements from the cross. When he speaks to Mary. Do you remember when he spoke to Mary from the cross? And Mary is there And the Gospel of John records this. He's the only one that records it because Jesus said it to John after he says it to Mary. As Mary's there in the shadow of the cross and they're actually gambling at that moment for the clothes of Jesus, he says from the cross to Mary, Mary, look, look next to you. Behold, look. See John here, the beloved disciple? That's your new son. And he says, hey, John, see this woman? Behold your mother. I'm gone. You guys are going to face persecution. It's going to be hard. You guys need to pull together. 
There's something about the joy set before us is not going to happen if you pull away from people, if you pull away from God's people. We should be assembling together more, and I would say more profoundly and more deeply, as we see the day approaching, because the forecast is, as the day approaches, it will get worse. And what I'm telling you is what the Bible tells us, we have to have each other. You want to be able to endure the sword that rips through your soul when you stand up and align yourself with Christ? You better have the people of God by your side. Let joy power you through the conflicts. And I just want to say for you loners out there, for you that are given up on relationships, you who pull away from other people, stop it. Stop it. You've been burned in the past. Okay. Suck it up. Move forward. Pull together. You've been burned. Trust again. You've had problems. Get back to it. Get in relationship. You need each other. We can't do this alone. Real Christians at Christmas will encounter controversy when our light shines in the darkness. But you've got to let go of all the self-preservation Trust God and walk as the family of God, not only through the holidays, but through the new year. Be faithful to him. It will be worth it. Speaking of ice on the sidewalks, I was in Chicago recently and was reminded of a story that D.L. Moody had told about a day when his daughter bought was purchased one of those hand warmers, those muffs they call them, where you put your hands in it, they're furry things. Emma, his daughter, was four years old, and she got this, this hand warmer. And when D.L. Moody came home from the office that day, she begged him, Daddy, Papa, she called him, Papa, take me out for a walk. It was cold, it was icy, it was snowing. And he said, okay. Moody loved kids. He was so responsive to his daughter. He loved his daughter, Emma had two other sons, but his only daughter. And he takes her out on this walk. She's four. And he says, give me your hand. He sees all the ice on the sidewalk. And she said, no, Papa, I want to keep my hands in this, in this muff. And so sure enough, not many steps later, she falls down. And D.L. Moody stoops down, picks her up, sets her back up and says, Emma, dear, hold my hand. And she said, no, Papa. And he lets her walk on her own, and sure enough, a few more steps, she falls down. He picks her up, he looks at her, she says, Emma, hold my hand. He said, Papa, oh, can I, just, can I just have your hand down here, and I'll stick my fingers out, and he said, let me just hold your finger. Moody, I can imagine, you know, probably chuckled and rolled his eyes, but as he tells the story, he let her finger grab his finger, And they walked a few more steps, and sure enough, she slips down, crashes down to the ground worse than before. And the picture of that desire to keep our hands toasty and warm, I love the way Moody said it. He said, it's like so many of us that want to hang on to the comforts of this world when what we really need in this slippery, vulnerable world that we're in is to hold tightly, to hold fully, to take firm grasp on the Lord and to say we stand with him. And the great news of that, to mix two biblical analogies, is we draw near to him, he draws near to us. As you reach your hand out to him, John 10 says, then his hand reaches around you. And he says, and no one can snatch you from my hand. It isn't going to happen with a pinky or a finger. You need to be all in this Christmas. You need to be all in with Christ. That passage that I just quoted from John 10 starts this way. I have these sheep, they hear my voice, and they follow me. And no one will snatch them from my hand. Maybe the Lord is speaking to you this morning about following him. And I would say to you, if you'd hear his voice today, as the Bible would say in Hebrews, chapters 3 and 4, don't harden your heart. You've never trusted in Christ, as you know I'm pleading with you to do. Reach out and take full grasp on the gospel of grace. Tell him you need forgiveness. Tell him you repent. Tell him you'll trust him and follow him. Tell him you will put your trust in him as the priest and the prophet and the king. That he'll be your payment for sin. That he'll be your source of information. That he'll be the leader of your life. And the waywardness and the wandering of sheep is no longer going to describe your life. 
that you're going to be faithful to do what he says, not what you think is best. And if you're a Christian here, like so many of us at the holidays, and you're afraid to stand up for Christ, I want to speak to you and say, take a full grip on Christ's hand and realize that the warmth of you protecting the relationships or the ambiance or the peace of that meeting or whatever it is that you're trying to hold on to is never worth it. We've got to have Christ walking through those corporate Christmas parties with us, those family gatherings. Hold on. Trust him. He can take you through this, but you have to be fully resolved to stand with him. I commend you to that kind of faith this Christmas time. Let's pray. God, help us, please, as Christians, to be much more faithful, to look to you with an uncompromising faith, to recognize the need that we have is to stop trying to stay comfortable and warm when we're here in a vulnerable, slippery world and our feet can so easily fall. We don't want to be like Peter, hiding in the shadows, denying Christ. We want to be able to stand strong and firm as Peter later did in Jerusalem, even when he was thrown in prison for being allied with Christ. So God, let us think about that. What if it cost us prison? What if they confiscated our property? What if they were even to, as they are around the world, threatening our lives just for standing with Christ? Let us make the decision that we would be faithful. God, give us the grace to be faithful this Christmas season. There's so many things that are much less than that, but will cost us as we let the light of Christ shine brightly through us. In Jesus' name, amen.